Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In the first part of this two-part episode, Wisdom Labs' Parneet Paul talks with Dr. David Katz. Dr. David Katz, MD, is the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and founder-president of the True Health Initiative. Katz was named one of the nation's top nutrition experts by dietspotlight.com and has authored 200 peer-reviewed publications and many hundreds of health columns. Katz is recognized globally for his expertise in nutrition, weight management, and the prevention of chronic disease. And now, part one with Dr. David Katz, interviewed by Dr. Parneet Paul. Welcome to the Wise at Work podcast, David. Thank you, Barney. Great to be with you. I really enjoyed reading an article by James Hamlin in The Atlantic in September of 2017. That article was titled, New Nutrition Study Changes Nothing, Why the Science of Healthy Eating Appears Confusing But Isn't. And I remember thinking, this is brilliant, and I hope everyone reads this, especially those of us at work who are trying so hard to optimize the way that we eat, whether it's for weight loss or living longer or having more energy to do our best work. Because what the article underscored was the fact that when it comes to the fundamentals of good nutrition, we have a lot of scientific evidence of what actually works. And that hasn't changed much despite any sensational headline that you may read. And this is a message that you've been writing and speaking about for many years as a physician, as a researcher, as an entrepreneur. You've really dedicated your work to rigorously investigating the science behind various aspects of lifestyle medicine, especially nutrition. And in fact, you had written an article for the Prevention Medicine column in July of 2016, which was titled, no nutrition news. And that said basically the same thing that Jim was talking about. So the question then becomes, if we know what works, if we have the scientific evidence for it, then why is there so much confusion about what to eat? (laughs) Well, first of all, Parneet, I love Jim Hamblin. Uh, Jim's a friend. He really gets it. He's a physician, by the way, and trained in public health. So what a great person to have writing at The Atlantic, you know, essentially somebody who is well-informed, knowledgeable, and insightful with a bully pulpit. So I, I tend to love his writing. We align very well. We've shared a podium on occasion, and I think he's a great guy, and I think he's doing a great public service. And as you say, I have written pretty much that same message myself, independently of Jim, that there is no nutrition news, nothing ever changes. And if we're going to make the case, Parneet, that you know we have all the evidence we need, frankly, I think we should go back a little further than that and make the case that we had all the evidence we needed before we invented evidence. And what I mean is, Every wild species on the planet knows what to eat, and there was a time we were just one of those. We were a kind of animal. We were adapted to a kind of food supply that sustained us, and we ate it. So we actually had to invent our confusion, and then we had to invent the science to alleviate our confusion, and then we invented rules about how to apply the science and created even more confusion. So one of the reasons we're perpetually confused now 
is I think we're misapplying science. We've talked ourselves into the notion that unless we can cite a specific randomized controlled trial to prove a given point, maybe we don't know it. And we're being talked into that in particular by a clan I refer to routinely as contrarians or iconoclasts. But, you know, there's a group of folks who have made their living and in some cases have had very successful careers telling us we're hopelessly confused about nutrition. Now, of course, that leaves room for their alternative theories and their books and all of that. Generally, the people making those claims have something to sell us. And they will point out the lack of definitive randomized control trials to prove this, that, or the other thing. But I've pointed out for years that if my foot were to catch on fire, I would not need a randomized control trial to fetch a pail of water, right? I mean, some things are just obvious. And then the question becomes, what is the role of science? And the role of science is to populate the gaps in our knowledge. The role of science is to reveal what our native naked senses can't already perceive. So, you know, I noted that I can read the writing on the wall without a great deal of science, but, you know, if I want to scrutinize the molecular structure of the chalk, I need a microscope, <laughs> and, you know, then I need science. So, you know, we need science for microscopes, we need science for telescopes, but just to look around and say, aha, I see what's going on here, we just need good sense and our native perceptions. You know, I think science is being misrepresented. That's part of the formula. But the fundamental answer to your question, why, is because there's money in it. If we were to know once and for all what good eating is all about, who would be able to sell us the next fad diet book? Who would be able to sell us the monthly men's and women's health magazines that act as if there's a brand new way to get the perfect backside or the perfect six-pack or the perfect breasts or figure this month, you know, that's completely different from last month. You know, we wouldn't reach for our credit cards when we got those invitations. What would populate the morning shows, which cover diet almost every day and certainly every week? So massive industries run on pseudo-confusion about diet and lifestyle. And in fact, massive industries run on both sides of the equation. If you think about it, we've got big food, profiting from our gullibility and confusion, selling us junk food. And by the way, junk can't be food and food can't be junk. The whole concept is oxymoronic, give or take the oxy. But there we are. So we've got one huge industry making us unnecessarily sick. And then we've got big pharma treating all the disease we didn't need to get in the first place. There are a lot of very profitable industry sectors in the modern economy that run on pseudo-confusion about diet they don't want it to change. So that's a partial answer, but it's a pretty robust answer for why we seem to be confused when in fact we're not. Thanks for clarifying that, David. And listening to that also makes me think that because of the confusion we find ourselves in, it's that much more important for all of us to have access to trusted resources that can point us in the direction of good health. So we'll be talking about more of these resources. We're also going to get into the details of a few popular diets. But first, I want to focus on a topic that I've spoken about previously on this podcast, the fact that diet is but one part of a healthy lifestyle and that there's immense power in using lifestyle as medicine. In fact, you say that the master levers of medical destiny are in our own hands. Why is paying attention to lifestyles so crucial when it comes to being wise at work? 
So, Parneet, I completed my second residency in preventive medicine uh, here at Yale. I'm, I'm at Yale as I'm doing this interview in 1993. So I was an internist, but I completed my master's in public health and preventive medicine training in 1993. That very year, a paper was published that effectively influenced the trajectory of my entire career. It was entitled Actual Causes of Death in the United States came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It was by two of our premier epidemiologists, Bill Fagey and Mike McGinnis. And essentially what they did in this paper was say, everything that shows up on a death certificate as a reason for premature death is a very poor explanation. So when someone dies of a myocardial infarction or heart attack, to list on their death certificate atherosclerotic heart disease as the cause of death tells us nothing. You know, yes, of course they had heart disease to have heart disease, but what caused that? So their paper took a whole different approach and said, we're interested in the underlying modifiable things, behaviors, exposures, that account for those chronic diseases that in turn account for the premature deaths. So they enumerated a list of 10 factors that collectively accounted for almost all of the premature deaths in the U.S. and by extension the modern world every year. And the full list of 10 factors included some things that require action by the body politic, like exposure to environmental toxins or rules of the road or rules regarding gun sales and trafficking. But 80% of the action was clustered in the first three entries on their list. And those first three entries were tobacco use, poor dietary pattern, and lack of physical activity. So in 1993, 25 years ago, those three things by themselves accounted for 80% of the premature deaths in the United States every year. And by extension, they accounted for 80% of the chronic diseases that antedate the premature deaths. 80% just what we do, and this is how I've referred to them ever since, with our feet, physical activity, our forks, dietary patterns, and our fingers, holding cigarettes. So in the years since, that basic conclusion has been reaffirmed again and again and again. In fact, it's one of the most reliably repetitive drumbeats in all of the peer-reviewed literature. But the list has gotten maybe a little bit longer. If we look at the whole lifestyle formula, it's not just feet, forks, and fingers. It's also sleep, stress, and love. There's a powerful literature telling us sleep influences every aspect of health. We've got to get enough of it. Our stress levels influence every aspect of health. Stress influences hormone levels. Hormone levels affect weight patterns and blood pressure and the immune system. And then relationships. So I can call that love as a shorthand, but all of our social connections are critically important. So I've adopted the mantra that lifestyle medicine is essentially about six domains and that it works best when we fire on all six cylinders, feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. And the other reason to focus on the whole formula is health really is holistic. And you know this, Parneet, when in my practice with patients over a 25-year span, there were many times people came to see me and wanted to improve their weight, so they wanted to change their diet. And they wanted to just dive in and start with that. But the reality was, the biggest barrier in their path was not that they lack knowledge to improve their diet, but they were exhausted from chronic sleep deprivation, from chronic stress and pain. And if we didn't address their chronic pain and their chronic stress, their toxic marriage, the job they hated, all those other things, there was no way we were going to improve their diet, let alone their physical activity pattern. So it's you know essentially a holistic enterprise or it's doomed to failure. So I've argued 
for all the years of my career that the master levers of medical destiny are not the tools of the medical trade. They're nothing at the cutting edge of advancing technologies. They're what we manage to do every day with our feet, forks, and fingers, our sleep stress, and social connections or love. And those are things we all ostensibly control. Now, the choices we make are subordinate to the choices we have. So I think we need to talk about environmental factors and social factors and cultural norms. But if you want to be wise at work, if you want to be well at work, if you want to be wise in your life and well in your life, if you want to live long and prosper, if you want many years in your life and a bounty of life in those years, you have to pay attention to lifestyle as medicine because it is by far and away the most powerful medicine we know. I love that. And thank you so much for reiterating that, David, because a lot of the times when we get busy at work, it's really easy for our well-being to move down our priority list. And I think we also forget that it's not just about our personal environments, but that we are all part of a well-being ecosystem, even at work. So our behaviors are influencing that of our colleagues and vice versa. Right, right. Also crucial. And and by the way, Parneet, I didn't mention this, you know this, but you know, it's an interesting thing. So many times over the years, I've preached to my patients this particular gospel, <laughs> the gospel of lifestyle, which I practice, by the way. And I've heard back things like, well, you know, I'm too busy. So working people have busy schedules. So I'm too busy, for example, to exercise or to eat well. And my answer has always been the same. Really? I'm too busy not to. And so I think that's part of the proposition for making this a worksite consideration. That is, Yes, healthy people have more fun. Yes, healthy people live longer. Yes, healthy people live better. But quite simply on a daily basis, healthy people are more productive. When you're firing on all cylinders, your thinking is better. Your cognition is better. Your memory is better. Your efficiency is better. Your enthusiasm is better. You are insightful enough and enthusiastic enough to have epiphanies. You know, it's interesting. I have a number of patents. I am an entrepreneur. Most of my creative advances have come while working out. I've been exercising. It cleared my mind, opened up a space, and eureka. I had a whole new idea. I spent the time working out, developing it. And by the time I was done, I sat down at the computer, sent off a note to a colleague or my patent attorney, what do you think about this? And we were off to the races. So I think a critical consideration here is that if you want to be the best version of you at work, you probably don't have time not to focus on lifestyle as medicine. And then, of course, there's one other consideration. People who don't have time to exercise, eat well, pay attention to lifestyle as medicine, inevitably find time to go to the emergency room or see the endocrinologist, right? I mean, there are choices we have, and if we don't make good ones, we wind up with choices we didn't actually choose. Yes, and that reminds me of this very popular saying in the meditation and mindfulness circles, which is, you know, I should be practicing 20 minutes a day every day, except on the days when I'm really busy and don't have enough time. That's when I need an hour of practice. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, I've heard an alternative version of that. If you don't have time to meditate for five minutes a day, you need 20. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> So keeping in mind that health is a holistic effort, if you had to prescribe, quote unquote, the best diet for our health for someone in the workplace, how would you summarize that? In other words, 
what should we be eating? Yeah, and of course, I actually have been forced to summarize that. So I've written multiple editions of a nutrition textbook. Had to answer that question there. <laughs> and by the way, my next book is coming out soon. It's called The Truth About Food. Had to do it there too. And then I did a paper for Annual Review of Public Health in 2014. It was a commission paper. And the title of the paper was, Can We Say What Diet is Best for Health? So those were my marching orders, answer the question. So it's pretty straightforward and people already know it. So if your diet is mostly made up of unprocessed or minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and if you mostly drink plain water when thirsty, it's it. You're done. Can't go too far wrong. And I like to focus on what you can and should eat rather than what you shouldn't eat. Because, you know, that's what we've done for years. You have to cut out this, you have to cut out that. No, no, no. A healthy diet is mostly vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, and plain water for thirst. And, you know, again, if it really is mostly that, you've already taken care of the stuff you shouldn't eat because it's mostly that. So, you know, anything else will make a cameo appearance. If you have that diet and there's nothing else, you're fine. That's everything you need. If you have that diet and you want to eat meat occasionally, that's fine. If you have that diet and eat some fish and seafood, better. Occasional poultry, fine. You include dairy, you exclude dairy, fine. Include eggs, exclude eggs, fine. We are constitutional omnivores, we homo sapiens. So we can run on an exclusively plant-based diet and do absolutely fine. But our anatomy, our physiology, allow for the inclusion of meat if we want to have that. So, you know, we have choices to make. But every dietary pattern ever studied associated with the best health outcomes. And when I talk about good health outcomes, Parneet, I'm really not all that interested in whether or not people can lose weight in six weeks or lower their blood pressure in six weeks because, you know, a lot of things that are bad for us can produce those outcomes. I'm interested in longevity and vitality. Does it meaningfully add years to life? Does it add life to years? Those are the questions I really care about. Well, every time you pose those legitimate questions, the answers are the good diets are mostly vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, plain water for thirst. And then everything else is negotiable. High fat or low? Uh, yeah, doesn't matter. Either way, Mediterranean diets are beautiful. They're high in fat. Some traditional Asian diets are also beautiful. They're low in fat, just not the right question. Higher or lower in carbohydrate? Uh, yeah, the high fat diets are lower in carbohydrate. The low fat diets are higher in carbohydrate. Also not a good question. So, you know, we've wasted decades asking silly questions about isolated nutrients. And the simple fact is, you know, with any given nutrient fixation, there are lots of ways to produce a bad diet. I think, you know, frankly, it's time for a fundamental reality check. There is more than one way to eat badly. And we in modern culture seem committed to exploring all of them at the expense of our health and to the profit of, you know, big food, big pharma. We really just need to get the fundamentals right. And if you do, if you size up your diet and it really is mostly made up of minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, plain water for thirst, you've reached the dietary promised land. And you pick whatever variant on that theme works best for you and your family because you like it best. I believe we should be able to love the food that loves us back because your family likes it best, because it's most convenient, because it comes from your native culture, whatever. 
we know the theme and the theme is not negotiable. But the variants on the theme are entirely up to you. I feel like we need to make T-shirts with this diet prescription on the front. I, I like that idea. I, I would wear one of those. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, most people understand the link between excess sugars, especially added sugars or processed foods, and how they've played a huge part in the epidemics of obesity and diabetes. But a big part of the confusion in recent years has been this debate around saturated fats. You know, one day we're told to avoid them. Next, we read that butter is back. In fact, we should be fueling our morning coffee with it. So could you help clear up this confusion around fats once and for all and put us out of our confused misery? Yes, and absolutely true that we're not boxed into one particular kind of diet. But I hasten to add, Parneet, before addressing the saturated fat issue, our choices are narrowing down, not so much because of human health. So for example, it might very well be, and, and we can talk more about this later, but it might very well be that an optimal paleo diet is a beautiful way to eat but it's completely unrealistic for a modern population of 8 billion. So our choices are narrowing down because there are too many of us on the planet, because the planet is running out of room and resources for us, and because we are devouring our home. We have to actually start shifting our diets in particular ways and especially moving to plant-predominant diets, not so much because of the limited choices related to health, but because of the overlap between what we know about health and what we know about environmental impact. So we ought to get more into that later too, because it's crucial. There are no healthy people on an uninhabitable planet and we're headed in that direction. And it's a little late for us to begin taking notice of that. And frankly, that has implications for the saturated fat discussion too. All of those telling us, don't worry about it, it's fine, are you know essentially peddling dairy and meat. And probably the single strongest argument against consumption of dairy and meat is the massive environmental impact of animal foods as opposed to plant foods. But let's just directly address the saturated fat issue. So there is a narrative, as you say, it now spans some number of years telling us that everything we thought we knew about saturated fat was wrong and that it's not bad for us and has been exonerated and in fact is good for us now. And the entire narrative is, in a word, false. And unfortunately, it's very easy to generate a false narrative in modern culture. You basically either pick some study or literature that supports your point of view, even if it's at odds with a thousand other studies, and you blog about it, or, and this works too, sadly, you're not really an expert, you misinterpret a study you weren't qualified to analyze, you publish your opinion, and since there are no editorial filters, nobody to check the facts anymore, all you need is internet access and a blog, it gets out there. And then if it gets out there, everybody who already owned that opinion, people who simply liked meat and butter, they find that article and they like it and they click it and they share it. And the next thing you know, a gazillion people have read it. And some of them also have blogs. And so now it's been blogged again. Now, maybe none of the people in the mix just so far is genuinely a nutrition expert, but now an expert, maybe not a nutrition expert, but a prominent physician, say, is giving a talk about diet and goes online to look for information about saturated fat. They find 10,000 sites telling them that saturated fat is fine now. 
and they're convinced, well, gee, you know, if it's all over the internet, it must be true, you know. I mean, gee, Abraham Lincoln tweeted about it. It's got to be true, right? That kind of thing. So I've actually seen this process play out where the initial assessment of the study was by somebody unqualified. It was wrong. It got retweeted, echoed, you know, in the internet echo chambers. And then prominent physicians who aren't specifically expert in that area and don't know that exact literature, but who have the bully pulpit, stumbled over that opinion, decided it must be valid, started broadcasting it. And then the original people go back and point to this reputable scientist or physician who's now talking about it and saying, see, we were right. And it's just a self-feeding cycle of nonsense. Specifically, this happened with saturated fat. And I don't want to bore anybody, but there were two meta-analyses that were misinterpreted that set this whole thing in motion. One was by an author named Siri Torino from 2010, so it's almost 10 years old now. The other was an author called Chowdhury, 2014. And essentially what both of these meta-analyses did was look at variation in rates of heart disease with variation in saturated fat intake in real-world cohorts, so populations living in the real world, mostly in the U.S., And what they concluded was across the range of saturated fat intake they were able to observe in the real world, from high to low, there was no difference in rates of heart disease. Rates of heart disease were high and constant at the lower end and at the higher end of saturated fat intake. Okay, that's what both of these meta-analyses told us. Now, you should be thinking now, wait a minute, how does that say anything about saturated fat being good for us? You said rates of heart disease were high both times with slightly lower, slightly higher saturated fat. That doesn't seem to say anything about saturated fat being good for us. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't. So we were told no difference in rates of heart disease, slightly higher, slightly lower saturated fat intake. Therefore, saturated fat must be good for us. Now, that does not work logically. But the twisted logic was, well, if you lower saturated fat intake a bit and you don't get lower rates of heart disease, it proves that saturated fat is not the bad actor. Therefore, saturated fat is good for us. Now, none of that makes any sense. Actually, there are two questions those meta-analyses should have invited people to ask. First, you know, what was the range of saturated fat intake we're talking about here? And the answer to that question was very narrow and rather high. In other words, everybody was consuming more saturated fat than recommended because that's what we do in the United States. So it's not as if there was a comparison between high levels and optimal levels. It was a comparison between slightly high levels and even higher levels. And rates of heart disease were high across the entire expanse. But the other question absolutely had to be, for those people eating a little bit less saturated fat, what were they eating instead? Because everybody's getting 100% of their calories from somewhere. And, you know, if we think the answer is broccoli and lentils, we're not paying attention. Frankly, the only way people have ever really reduced their intake of saturated fat in this country is to eat low-fat junk food. So a little less pepperoni and a few more Snackwell cookies. Well, in fact, A later study by Lee and colleagues looked at that very issue in 100,000 people over 30 years. They looked at, okay, who has reduced their saturated fat intake over time and what calories replaced those calories? And here's what they found. 
If you reduced your saturated fat intake and replaced saturated fat with trans fat, partially hydrogenated oil, in other words, if you gave up butter to eat stick margarine, things actually went from bad to worse because trans fat is a very bad actor. We knew that, and trans fat is pretty much gone from the food supply now. If you replace saturated fat calories with refined starch, white flour, and added sugar, your rate of heart disease didn't change at all. It was a lateral move. In other words, there's more than one way to eat badly, and we seem committed to exploring them all. So you can have a really bad diet because of lots of you know, processed deli meats and processed dairy and a high intake of saturated fat, or you could be eating a lot of highly processed goods made from white flour and added sugar and also have a bad diet. If, however, you replace saturated fat calories with unsaturated fat calories from nuts, seeds, olives, olive oil, avocado, fish, and seafood, rates of heart disease plummeted. And if you replace saturated fat calories with whole grain calories, rates of heart disease plummeted. So in fact, these meta-analyses that were massively distorted by people who didn't really know what they were talking about to create a false narrative that has now reverberated across a span of years through a million or more blog sites was all based on nonsense. And the reality was and is that an excess of saturated fat prevails and that an excess of saturated fat is bad for us and that shifting your diet toward more meat and more dairy is a bad idea and almost certain to increase your risk of chronic disease and premature death. Period, end of story. So no, saturated fat is not good for us now. That doesn't mean I would fixate solely on saturated fat. That's the alternative mistake. And that's a big part of our dialogue about nutrition now. We've got to have a scapegoat, Parneet. You know, you've got to tell me the one thing wrong with our diet, right? But that's absolute nonsense. Saturated fat can be bad for us and excessive in our diets. And sugar can be bad for us and excessive in our diets. We don't need to choose. And what I would recommend people do choose is a wholesome dietary pattern, wholesome foods and sensible assemblies. Because if you mostly eat vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and drink plain water when thirsty, guess what? You won't have an excess of sugar or saturated fat or sodium for that matter. Thank you so much for explaining that. I think it's going to help our listeners not just eat better, but also engage in a conversation around fats with more clarity and understanding. Your new book, The Truth About Food, is going to be essential reading for all of us. So as we come to the end of this first part of our conversation, David, you've certainly given our listeners at work a great foundation on which they can make better choices about the food they eat, uh, a better understanding of why attention to lifestyle is so key to optimal performance. And in the second part of our conversation, we're going to dig into personalization of diets, big picture questions around food policy and saving the planet, uh, how employers can invest in lifestyle medicine for their workforce, and also some key resources that you've made available to help us live better. Thank you so much, David, for all your insights and for helping us get wiser at work through our lifestyle choices. My pleasure, Parnita. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, 
team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.